0: Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas.
1: Traditional business has a model of behavior. It's a very vicious, insidious, cruel, selfish model of human behavior, and the advice that follows is that kind of advice. It's as though you wandered into a tribe of of vicious headhunters, and you happen to be interested in gentleness and kindness and relative social values, and they would just tell you mostly how to sharpen your spears and how to put sufficient poison on the tips to make sure you kill your enemy and how to shrink and dry heads.
0: Tonight, new ideas on economics and ecology, part three. In traditional
2: societies, they never did separate the sort of the human and the social from the economic, and we went, you know, headlong, rushing into industrialization. No cost was too high to produce uh, you know, cornucopia of, of, of goods. And uh, it's only now that we're starting to think, wait a minute, maybe we've divorced, you know, the, the human social side from the economic side, and we start, ought to start intermingling the two. And I think the only way you can really intermingle them is by creating uh, and fostering new kinds of economic institutions.
0: New Ideas on Economics and Ecology is written and presented by David Cayley.
3: Thirteen years ago, the economist E.F. Schumacher wrote a book called Small is Beautiful. He subtitled it, Economics as if People Mattered. And economics as if people mattered is what tonight's program is about. People, of course, have always come into economics one way or another, but sometimes in rather peculiar ways. Classical economics, for example, assumed that societies were composed entirely of isolated individuals, or mythical individuals called corporations. It held that these individuals are all in competition with each other and that everything they compete over has its price. Modern economics added the idea that the sum of their price transactions, the gross national product, is a proper measure of economic welfare. Today, a handful of heretical economists, along with many more inspired amateurs, are beginning to question our old assumptions about economics. They believe that it should be about communities and not just individuals. They believe we need to expand our definition of economic life to include more than just the goods and services that are exchanged for money. And they also believe we need new economic tools if we want to rebuild healthy, local economies which conserve both nature and community. Tonight you'll be meeting a number of people who feel this way. Among them, economists who are drawing attention to the informal economy where money doesn't change hands at all, a director of a credit union in British Columbia which invests in businesses that wouldn't otherwise get money, and a business consultant who says that openness, cooperation, and love, not competition, are what really succeed in business. But first, two people who've helped pioneer a new way of thinking about economics, David Ross and Hazel Henderson.
4: Governments at a time like this will be exhibiting the politics of the last hurrah, which is basically when you're faced with change, you rigidify and you redouble your efforts to apply the old medicines. And the way that you know you're in a new region of systemic change is that the more you apply the old medicine, the less stable the patient's condition becomes.
3: Hazel Henderson directs the Alternative Futures Program at the University of Florida she's also written two books and numerous articles on economics, so she's sometimes described as an economist. But Henderson herself scorns the term, preferring to call herself a futurist. In fact, she has no formal training in economics at all. Henderson left school at 16 and taught herself the subject later for practical reasons.
4: I studied uh, traditional economics to try to decode all of this highly abstract um, language that the politicians debate the issues in. You know, we should inflate the economy or we should deflate or we should deregulate and all of this kind of abstract stuff, all based on kind of statistical illusions about average productivity and average unemployment. And I began to think, what we need is a new map. That this map leaves out so much territory that is new that it's like trying to drive uh, across the United States with a map from the 1920s that doesn't show the interstates. And, you know, you could get lost in all kinds of thickets. And so I began to decode economics in that way, uh, trying to look at what are their criteria for judging what, in fact, is human progress? What do they mean by economic growth? Why is it a good idea? What criteria do they use, use to judge that? What does the GNP mean? And um, can we really use that as a measure of progress in this new zone where we are uh, creating with our production systems a tremendous amount of environmental damage. We are destructuring and destroying communities and family life. And it seemed that as I looked deeper and deeper into economic theory, uh, most of these important and rapidly occurring structural changes Uh, were a whole lot of of social costs that simply dropped right off the economist's balance sheet.
2: My training is is very traditional. It's the only kind of training you could ever get in economics uh, in the 60s when I was going to university. And uh, I survived that and came out and, uh, in fact, started to teach it for a number of years, traditional economics. And then I got started to get involved with uh, low-income groups and women on welfare and community activism like that, and I realized that what I was teaching had very little relevance to what I was seeing on the, on the streets.
3: That's David Ross, a consultant of various community groups. He's based in Ottawa and describes himself as a social economist. Ross believes that part of our problem today is that economists confuse the way things are with the way things ought to be.
2: The biggest error in in economics, the way it was taught then and largely still is, uh, is treating it as a science, is saying that this is the only way, you know, this is the way the economy works. And in fact, it turned out to be this is the way that a lot of economists wanted it to work. Efficient, uh, everything is privately owned, and profits dictate, you know, what happens. Uh, and if pollution develops, for example, or, or something is happening in a plant that causes cancer, unless the costs of those to the employer are greater than the benefits that he's getting from, you know, producing this way, then that's, that's the way, the, you know, the system, system works, and that's all right. There's no moral judgment other than, uh, you know, free enterprise. And so it's only when you start looking at, uh, you know, what is sort of best for society and and organizing in a way that what I would call social profits, using social profits as as a basis for making economic decisions rather than private profits, you have to look at the impact on the entire community of an economic action before you can judge whether or not you should do it. Then you start looking at that, then you're into a whole new field of economics, a much more
3: democratic uh, way of looking at things. Ross believes this separation of economic theory from social life became especially bad after World War II. That's when economists began to aspire to mathematical precision.
2: There was an enormous mathematization of of economics uh, beginning in the 1950s. Uh, Most of the people now who win Nobel Prizes for economics, they won it because they did some little mathematical trick back in the, you know, back in the 50s or 60s, It looked very clever. And the minute you did that, then you you shut down the whole... Uh, you can't deal with social and political influences once you start mathematizing things and using, you know, great long equations and systems that are closed and that. Uh, we came to learn more and more about less and less. You know, it got very elegant, but it really became, came to explain uh, nothing. And people who tried to introduce... Uh, you know, extraneous things, or what economists would call noise, into the system. You know, like uh, like people wanting, you know, a, a different system, or trying to democratize markets. Uh, trade unions, for example, were always considered as, as imperfections in the market model. You know, as if they they should go away, like a, like a blemish on the face. Uh, minimum wages, uh, unemployment insurance, all these things are regarded as, as aberrations and imperfections, and they're taught as as that. You know, they're not they're not improvements to the system. This term noise is a real one, is it? Well, it's a, it's a term that sometimes uh, mm-hmm. econom- econometricians will say, well, there's, there's noise in the data, uh, which means that, you know, it's, it's unruly, sort of. You can't <laughs> There's people in here somewhere. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> they're messing it up. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> a lot of economists today would never, uh, and they're not being Machiavellian or anything, they just don't realize that what they're doing is capitalist apologetics, really, is, is what, they're, what they're up to. But they don't realize it. They're not, they're not trying to be harmful. Uh, it's just that they've been brainwashed in, in university for so
3: long, and then they travel with the same crowd, and and they end up that way. Both David Ross and Hazel Henderson feel that what economics needs is a more comprehensive and less biased model of how things work. Here's how Henderson revises the economist's standard image of the economy as a pie.
4: I began to realize that their pie was kind of too shallow, and that actually... The whole productive system of a society was not a pie at all, but there were two lower layers that it was standing on, and it was much more like a three-layer cake with icing on the top. And, of course, the icing on the top is what um, we all refer to as the private sector. And we all love the private sector because it's where we have the most freedom to innovate, uh, to do what we want, start up new businesses. But of course, uh, it's only the icing on the top of the cake. And it actually rests on the next layer down, which is the public sector. And in a complex industrial society, you cannot have a private sector without a public sector. And somebody, uh, i.e. the taxpayer, has got to provide the roads and um, the sewers and the harbors and the police force and the national defense. And all of these uh, infrastructure supports without which The private sector cannot really exist. So the economists map those two sectors quite well. But then the two lower layers of the cake on which they rest are the third sector down, which is the social sector, the informal economy, all of that cooperative community activity where we serve on the school board and parent our children and do the volunteer programs and the Meals on Wheels and the do-it-yourself production, which actually, even in industrial societies, is about half of all of the productive economic activity that goes on that economists totally miss because it's not paid for in cash, and then, of course, the, the last lower layer, which everything else rests on, is Mother Nature. And if you, don't, if you start exceeding Mother Nature's tolerances and messing around too much, then uh, that uh, starts breaking down and the entire cake crumbles.
3: Mother Nature, of course, isn't the only layer of the cake that's got problems. The breakdown of biological systems is mirrored on other levels as well, by inflation, unemployment expanding deficits, high interest rates. Taken together, these problems produce an extremely unstable economic situation, and one that's very threatening to local communities. Hazel Henderson believes that communities need to respond to this by strengthening their abilities to rely
4: on themselves. Communities have to begin the very painful process of unhooking themselves from the addiction, of sitting there and waiting for the goodies, and being told what to do. And so, basically, what it is, is trying to assess how you can really invest in the skills of your own people and encourage your own entrepreneurs, encourage your own type of R&D in your universities, and work with your own local ecosystem. in in some kind of an optimal way. And that instead of trying to head on compete to produce more automobiles and VCRs in competition with the Japanese, you really do have to understand what Adam Smith really meant by comparative advantage. And that was that it was a cooperation strategy. It's the way nature works. You look for a genuine niche in the marketplace so that you don't actually have to compete with anybody. And I think that local governments are seeing this now, that if they all rush out and try to bring in an automobile assembly plant from Korea or Japan or a VCR uh, assembly operation from Taiwan or somewhere, uh, what they end up with is, is simply they've exposed themselves to this global fast lane, the worst kind of instabilities, where they will have a very quick ride for two or three years, and then the plant will move to China. And so the only way to go is to button up the local economy.
3: One way to button up the local economy is to keep money at home by investing it locally. You can do that through credit unions or other locally controlled financial institutions, and later we'll be looking at that. But right now, Henderson has another idea which I think is worth exploring. She believes you can also bolster your local economy by considering alternatives to the national currency. Henderson calls these local limited-purpose currencies. One of her favourite examples is a system recently introduced in her home state of Florida.
4: The service credit system, which we've just legislated in the state of Florida, is like an official blood bank of uh, crediting volunteers with the work they do in the community so that eventually we hope we can give out what we're calling service credit cards, which would enable volunteers in good standing in the community who've racked up so many hours to have a little plastic credit card with their name on it saying, I am a a service credit volunteer, and here's my credit card, which entitles me to ride on the buses free or to use any underutilized public amenity, which is being paid for by the taxpayers. Uh, And so in every place I go, I find people are inventing either alternative limited-purpose currencies, or they are growing a homegrown information economy, where they're uh, linking needs and resources, exchanging skills, doing learning networks, many of them using uh, personal computers, and they're doubling up in houses and figuring out all kinds of mutual aid and barter schemes, whereby they can do the only sensible thing, and that is to stay out of the funny money fast lane. And you see the same non-money economy sprouting, of course, in the international trade field, where 25% of all international trade is now conducted in barter for precisely the same reason. And it's, it's really... Uh, What is actually happening is that money and information are becoming interchangeable and people are realizing, look, we don't need those strange green pieces of paper that the feds print, that they're not the only croupier that can dish out the chips. Um, We need some local chips to play with.
3: In Courtney, British Columbia, I found an example of the kind of alternate currency Hazel Henderson's been talking about. It's called LETS, short for Local Exchange Trading System. Its founder, Michael Linton, got the first glimmerings of this idea while he was listening to a talk by the late American philosopher, Alan Watts.
5: Alan Watts spoke at UBC about 20 years ago to a student group, mainly, about money. And what he said was that during the recession, the reason that things had slowed down and nothing was happening was that there wasn't enough money around, which was quite right. He described it in accurate and precise detail what happened. And he pointed out the absurdity of this. He said, look, money is nothing more than a measure. It's like a foot, or an inch, or a metre, or a kilogram. It's the thing we describe how much we've got of. It's not the thing itself, it's the thing that we describe things with. And to say that we couldn't get on with our lives because there wasn't enough money around would be like saying we can't build this house today, we don't have any feet. We've got the wood, (laughs) we've got all the pieces, we just don't have the feet. (laughs) So I thought about that and I thought, he's right, he's right. But I didn't do anything about that because uh, who could do anything about that? I mean, you're gonna persuade people you've got a different money system, you could do it differently. Now, then I went and did things like uh, business degree, a certain amount of experience in business, retail, uh, manufacturing, this, that, and the other. Turned up in the Comox Valley, and we've got uh, unemployment. And I certainly don't have any way of earning a living around here in the conventional currency. Um, and I heard about a small barter club. A small barter club was just a group of people who wanted to connect with each other and swap things backwards and forwards because they had no money. So I went to a few of their meetings, and I found that there were some problems with direct barter. Uh, that You have to find two people who match up exactly with each other. And so quite often, the only things that can be exchanged are rare parts of a person's life. The most part of their livelihood, uh, food, maintenance, uh, earnings, this, that, and the other, are not handled through those chance encounters with a person who's got exactly what you want, and you've got exactly what they want. So in order to handle the matching of people's needs and requirements in this little group of people, I suggested that we put together a small notice board on which they could uh, easily advertise what it was they wanted to offer or request their surplus of their needs. And that we would then keep a form of account of their mutual trading amongst each other for them in such a way that uh, they had some idea of who was putting water in and taking what out you know everything was in balance in other words we produce an internal money supply for the system today
3: the Courtney let system has more than 600 members in the last three years their volume of trade has amounted to about 300,000 dollars I asked Michael Linton what I'd be getting myself into if I joined up
5: when you trade with somebody else uh, in the let system Uh, then part or all of that transaction can be acknowledged as a movement of dollars. Now, of course, these are not dollars um, issued by the Bank of Canada. They're just entries in a book of accounts. So some people have some green dollars to their name, and other people have a negative account of green dollars because they have spent some before they've earned it back. And it's just the interplay between people's trading backwards and forwards that moves those so-called green dollars around and gives you the effect of having another money in your community.
3: Green dollars have two important characteristics. First, they're abundant. They can simply be created at need. And second, they're personal. The people who issue them are personally committed to earning them back.
5: Every dollar in a let system is backed by somebody's promise. That actually makes it the strongest currency in existence. Principally because A, the person who makes the promise is always going to be able to redeem it. That is to say, he's around in the community and the money he has promised is also around in the community and he cannot fail to earn it back if he's willing to do something. Anything. Anything that anybody in the community wants. Anything that he could say, I'm available to mow your lawn for green dollars, look after your kids, consult in your business, offer these services, those services. If it's something that somebody in the community conceivably want and would have the money to spend on, they'll buy it. And you have put those green dollars into circulation so they're there. People will fulfill their own promises when the facility for them to do so is there. And that's the key distinction. Conventional money people make promises, and you can't believe a word of it. I promise I will pay you next week. Yeah, okay, (laughs) If my ship comes in, if my UIC check comes through. With a conventional currency, that's the rule in the games. You can't trust people's promises.
6: In the last few months, I have bought firewood for partial green dollars, say 50-50.
3: Sarah Callisto is a Courtney resident and a Let System member.
6: I have had a beautiful sweater knit for me, and the wool spun. I gathered the wool from my dog, which I brushed out, and he's a really long-haired dog. And some one woman spun it, and then I turned it over to another woman who then knit me a sweater out of it. And that was almost 100% green dollars. There's a natural food store in Comox that takes 15 to 25% green dollars depending on how he's doing with it that month. And I go there often. In fact, I go there rather than shop in Courtney. I'll drive that five miles to Comox because he accepts green dollars.
3: Is is participation in this let system significantly reducing your need for cash, or is it just at the level now of sort of supplementing it here and there.
6: Yeah, it's it's not reducing my need for cash because my main outlays are for my housing, my mortgage and my hydro and my phone, and I can't use green dollars for those things. What this pays for is luxuries, extra things that I would not otherwise be able to afford.
3: Sarah Callisto earns green dollars by sewing, selling things secondhand, working in the let system office, and through childcare, She's noticed that people use the system in several different ways.
6: The members seem to participate on maybe three different levels. And one is people who are willing to accept 100% green dollars for anything. If you say, can I give you green dollars? I don't have cash, they say, sure. And then there's another level where people want a percentage of green. A reasonable percentage of cash say you know they feel like they have to have a few dollars in cash to just add to their income and then there's other people who feel like they are they'll just they'll do it for mostly cash and they'll out of a hundred dollars they'll say oh you can give me five dollars of it green which isn't really playing the game it's like they sort of want their foot in it but they're scared you know and of those people, I'd say that the ones who are willing to accept 100% green, um, there's maybe a core of, I'd say, 150 or so out of maybe the 600 or so members there are. And those people are trading around constantly with each other, and then the other they're going out, stepping out, and interacting with those other members who aren't willing to do 100% once in a while. But there's this sort of a core group.
3: The courtney Let system is still in its infancy. Right now, only a handful of Comox Valley businesses will even accept green dollars. But if everyone accepted them, Mike Linton thinks it could change the whole pattern of local economic development. At the moment, many communities are chronically short of cash. As a result, they're forced to rely on cheap imports because they're less expensive than things produced at home. But if communities had more money available for local trade, like green dollars, then perhaps they could afford to make or grow some things they now import. The economic base would become more diverse, more stable, more secure. There'd be more jobs. Communities could still engage in external trade, but they wouldn't have to stake their entire livelihoods on it. Altogether, Michael Litton has high hopes for the Let's system. He's invented a game called Let's Play to teach other communities how to use it. And he's offering a software package for the system at cost. LET systems are also being started in Vancouver, possibly Toronto, and other North American
5: cities. Meanwhile, Courtney is still learning to use its LET system. There are two directions one can go in a LET system one is earning green dollars, and the other is spending green dollars. Consequently, there are two directions one cannot go in a LET system one can be unable to spend them, or one can be unable to earn them. Many people do not conceive they have anything to offer. So they're very reluctant to uh, spend green dollars in case nobody wants anything they have. Others are more concerned, what can I buy with this stuff? Like I've earned 500 green dollars, where can I spend it? Now they are often more problematic at this time because people are geared to, I earn some money and I want to be able to spend it now on the thing that is nearest to my heart's desire. That is to say, my BC telephone bill. And BC Tel does not yet take green dollars. So there's often a situation where people are waiting for the thing they want to buy to be available to them and regard the green dollar as not valuable or spendable until they see that thing. Other people say to themselves, well, what the hell, I'll have a cashmere sweater instead. Or, I will have back massages for the next six weeks.
3: In other words, so you let it enter your real life and say that you're going to live in the direction in which things are available to you in your community.
5: Yeah, like Frank Sinatra's coming to town. So, So I go and see Frank Sinatra. I don't stand outside and bitch that it's not Bruce Springsteen. You know, like, go to the show that's on.
3: Part of the genius of the let system is that it turns the age-old practice of face-to-face barter into a viable local economy. Barter is usually classified as part of the informal economy, that part of the economy where things aren't paid for in money, a part that economists have often ignored. But today some people are arguing that the informal economy is just as important as the formal one, where money counts. That includes economist David Ross. And geographer Peter Usher, they're co-authors of a new book called *From the Roots Up: Economic Development as If Community Mattered*. First, David Ross. I think a big
2: mistake was made uh, 30 or 40 years ago when economists uh, decided, partly because of the Great Depression, that we had to have a better measure of economic activity uh, in, the, in the country, and so they started focusing on gross national product, or GNP, which is the you know the sum of economic activity that goes on. But it it cuts short of of measuring all economic activity. I mean, my biggest complaint with it is that it does not measure activity in the household, for example. Uh, If you fix your own car, if you paint your own building, if you build your own house, uh, none of that ever gets recorded in gross national product. If you hire a big firm to come in and do it, of course, that gets accounted. You end up with the same output at the end of the year. The house has been built. But in one case, you have it recorded. In the other case, you do not have it recorded. Uh, so all housework, all, all of the things that, uh, that women have done in the past, people, you know, people in small communities helping each other, uh, whether it's building a barn or, or you know, quilting bees or, or just babysitting for each other or you know, giving somebody a lift down the road to help them with the groceries so they don't have to take a taxi cab, a whole range of things that people did, but a whole range of things that people did inside the household. I mean, one reason that GNP's gone up so drastically in the last few years is because uh, of, of daycare. People who used to provide daycare in their own homes uh, are now purchasing it. So that goes into GNP. But nowhere is a deduction made for the fact that it's really a transfer, that really we haven't gained anything. It's, it's Children were always being cared for, uh, but now all of a sudden, because we're paying for it, it goes into GNP. So it looks like GNP has really gone up. And I think this is where people are, well, a lot of people are starting to question now that, uh, you know, the, the economic growth, the, the higher salaries that we have, uh, there's been a great cost to them. Right. That, in fact, it hasn't been all a net gain. And, of course, where you have households where, where both spouses are working, uh, they come to realize this very quickly, that a $40,000 salary isn't twice as much as 20000 when one person was, was uh, you know, attending to, to
3: home care. The difference between the informal and formal economies is not just a matter of who does what things or where these things are done. It's also a matter of how they're done. The informal economy, according to Peter Usher, is driven by a completely different set of principles than the formal economy.
7: What it is, is we have a system of, if you like, balanced or generalized reciprocity. We do things for other people on an an understanding that somewhere along the line, that will be repaid. And in a sense, generation does, you know, each generation does that for the next. You know, people uh, raise their kids and uh, try and give them, uh, you know, food and shelter and education and, uh, you know, a place to start in the world and so on, and they assume that perhaps in their old age they might uh, be able to rely on on their children who are productive. People do things for each other and they don't say, well, gee, that'll be five dollars or you do that for me tomorrow. Uh, There's an assumption that well, that fellow's always been good to me, and I'll be good to him. Or, or uh, you know, I owe that person a favor because of what they did for me a long time ago, and people work that way. And what's going on then is what drives the that kind of economic activity is not the ambition to accumulate. What's really intended is to maintain the social system in the sense of maintaining the stability of the networks and and that they're going to work. It's a form of security. And when we don't have that security, we have to do an awful lot of things to replace it. We have to buy insurance policies, we have to have old age, uh, you know, we have to invest in uh, pension funds and uh, a whole number of things like that to take care of ourselves individually because we can't rely anymore on on a wide network of people to uh, make sure those
3: things are done. The principles underlying the formal and informal economies are often at odds with each other. For instance, formal economic life hardly allows us time to maintain supportive social networks. In fact, the way the formal economy operates often works to destroy informal networks. Workers, for example, are supposed to go where the jobs are, wherever they are the
7: market and labor suggests that we have to really be completely mobile and go wherever the jobs are and that is extraordinarily destructive of community I don't know how you can build continuity and stability of community institutions or family institutions when that is the case so that in order to strengthen the formal economy we have to almost deliberately uh, gut or weaken the very
3: strength the foundation of the informal economy for the most part, this gutting has already taken place. And with social networks eroded, Peter Usher says household production has become a very different thing than it once was.
7: One problem with informal activity, and especially the way it has been going in, this, uh, in, in the modern era, is this, I think, and this is a, a key reason, perhaps, why women, especially, I think, feel very ambivalent when they, when they hear talk of, of glorification of the informal economy. It's become very isolated. If we, would, if we would go back to the kind of informal economy that people had, uh, let's say, in uh, non-industrial situations or uh, even uh, 50 or 100 years ago, families were much more extensive, communities much more close-knit, people did things in groups. In other words, when we talk about food preparation, child care, the education and instruction of children, the place of old people in society, uh, we didn't hive them off and said, you go, you go and do that alone all day. People did them together. And one of the problems with informal uh, production and, and, and economic activity, especially as it developed in the post-war period, was that it was terrifically isolating. So here's the man in the formal workforce uh, having a great old time. Uh, well, not necessarily a great old time, but at least he does something social. He sees people all day, sees other adults. And uh, I think one of the reasons, uh, the, the plus side of, of women getting into the workforce is they think, my goodness, it's a social activity. I can be a, an intelligent, social person. So the problem with the informal economy, the way we've structured it by and large today, is that it's extremely isolating, and, and aside from the fact that it's not very remunerative and uh, doesn't have very high status, is that isolation doesn't make it very
3: attractive. This puts the issue very squarely. Household production, to be attractive, must be social. One way out is to make it part of the formal economy, as we're doing now, for example, with childcare. But there is also a possibility of keeping production in the non-money sector and, in effect, re-socializing it. This has implications ranging from how we build our homes and neighborhoods to how we tax domestic production. Implications too large for me to explore fully here. But take a couple of examples. Right now, productive equipment in the household, freezers, tools, washing machines, what have you, is taxed as consumption. The same equipment employed in a business can be written off. If we taxed both equally, we would create an incentive for domestic production. The same argument can be made for childcare. Tax monies now subsidize daycare. If equivalent resources were given to those caring for children at home, It would become more attractive to stay at home, and people working now might choose to do so, men as well as women. The point is, we have a decision to make about this, and if we want households and neighborhoods that are vibrant and alive, and we want support networks that can sustain people through the ups and downs of the formal economy, then I think a case can be made for supporting the informal economy through public policy. But first, we've got to take our eyes off the gross national product and simply notice that the informal economy is there. informal economy is only part of what makes communities strong. Their strength comes from their formal economic institutions as well, their businesses. And in recent years, with plant closures and the like, many communities have begun to realize that if they want long-term stability and security, they'll have to use their creativity and imaginations to create stronger, more diverse local economies themselves. But to do this, they need capital. That's forced some people to take a serious look at how money enters and leaves their communities and to figure out ways to encourage local reinvestment. One way to do this is through locally owned financial institutions like credit unions. Traditionally, credit unions have focused on consumer lending rather than riskier small business lending. But earlier this year, the Van City Credit Union in Vancouver departed from this quite significantly. It announced it would invest half a million dollars in community economic development. Joy Leach is director of development at Simon Fraser University, and a director of the Van City Credit Union.
8: Van City has put the challenge to itself to be relevant to community with community capital, and to take a contributing role in economic renewal, and. Uh, the revitalization of of our our local economies. We are interested in encouraging the growth and and incubating, if you will, new enterprise, which is started by people who have uh, either a good sound education or uh, experience in various fields and various industries so that they may have a very good idea, they may have the experience to carry that idea forward, but may always have been dependent on an em- employee's salary and have therefore never amassed uh, a capital pool that will help them advance the project. We are saying that their experience and their education, we count that as equity, so that they don't have to come in and have $50,000. They have to come in and have a good idea, a good plan, and show us how they intend to draw on the strengths of the community to move a new enterprise forward which can be expected to create employment and expand the economic activity of the region.
3: In other words, you're redefining your relationship to the community and putting more stock in Native skills and ideas.
8: That's right. The genius for economic renewal rests at the community level, and uh, we believe that we are going to suffer an even greater loss of skill as a result of the downturn in the economy if the very talented people who have been housed in the large companies are lost or left to go on UI or welfare or worse.
3: Since when has Vansity taken this turn?
8: Oh, this is very new. This is very new. This is our, our first year. We have decided we will only back 10 projects this year because we don't want to make mistakes and frighten everyone. Um, so that we're being quite cautious. I spent last night reviewing projects. Uh, One that we've uh, approved is for uh, uh, bicycle manufacture. We're taking the venture capital approach, but at a very human scale. It's a very small-scale program, and it's the reason why we're calling it seed capital. It relates back to the seeds that must go in the garden if we're going to cultivate a new economy.
3: Van City's first tentative steps would truly help to cultivate a new economy in BC. Overall, there's now $6 billion on deposit in BC credit unions. Add in union pension funds and other locally controlled capital pools and you begin to see the potential. Van City has recently created another first as well. It's a mutual fund which is being invested according to ethical criteria, a first in Canada. This fund will only invest in Canadian companies that create local employment, treat their employees well, and don't abuse the environment. The fund's only been open for four months, but already it stands at two and a half million dollars.
8: It's a matter of putting your money where your mouth is. Uh, for for many people, they're very concerned about these kinds of issues, and this is an opportunity to to go beyond. Individuals very frequently have have high principles on these matters, but. But will invest or let their money allow their money to be invested in the most outrageous ways. And I think it's because they are disconnected with money, disconnected with their own, well, uh, from their wealth. And and, and and don't recognize that everything they care about can be subverted if they do not pay attention to what they do with their money. I mean, it's as silly as uh, as watching your community go down on its knees economically, but running into Vancouver to spend. I mean, if you're carrying all of your wealth outside of your community, then uh, uh, you're really doing your community a disservice and most probably yourself as well.
3: A lot of what you've heard so far tonight has been about a new economics, a social economics, in which human interests and economic interests are not opposed to each other. It's an approach which offends many of our favorite prejudices about the real world, which is supposed to be harsh, mean, and competitive, nasty, brutish, and short. But according to Michael Phillips, these prejudices are just that, prejudices. Michael Phillips was once a vice president of the Bank of California. Then, in the early 70s, he began to work as a consultant to many of the new hippie businesses that were then opening in San Francisco. There were whole food stores, small publishers, craft stores, even a small circus called the Pickle Family Circus. These businesses were set up to do something, or share something, not just make money. And the ideas of their owners were so much at variance with conventional business wisdom that many of them couldn't even get through the door of a bank to get a loan. That's where Phillips came in. He organized them into a mutual support network called the Briar Patch. And in the process, Michael Phillips discarded his traditional ideas of business, that you have to be aggressive and competitive to succeed.
1: What happened was that of the, I I did a sample, of the 500 businesses for which I had good records dating back at that time, dating back eight years. And of those 500 businesses, over 450 had been in business, had started and been in business more than five years. The national average in the United States and in Canada and England is that 90% of businesses will have failed in the first three years. It's the difference between black and white, night and day. This group of hippies and young, young, naive people who didn't know what the traditional values were for business and had their own were stepping into the same situation into which ordinary people would set foot and 90% 90 of them would fail in three years. And five years later, 90% of them were successful. You'd have to say what was right about the second group and what was blatantly wrong about the first group, the traditional way of doing business. And as I look back on it, that's what honest business is about, and that's what the Briar Patch made me realize.
3: Today the Briar Patch has about four hundred and fifty members in the San Francisco Bay Area. Membership is based on a commitment to three basic principles.
1: The values that the Briar Patch businesses have as a whole is first openness. Second is cooperation, and third is the reason for being in business as they love the particular business they're in. Now, openness was just their attitude. Those were the types of people we were dealing with. It was one of the social values that was coming out of the late 60s. It was openness and honesty. That if you're going to deal with people in a comfortable, long-term relationship, you had to be candid about your feelings. You had to be willing to listen to their feelings and their statements about you in order to create a genuine friendship. And that pervades briar patch business. It went so far that their financial statements are almost always available anywhere. You know, posted in the front of the store, posted in the business somewhere on the front table. That openness uh, was a value. Second one was they actually had a genuine belief in cooperation, willingness to share their re- resources. One of the qualities about being in the briar patch and having the membership list is that you know that. You can call other people on the list and they'll answer your questions. And lastly was the value of that they had to be in a business they loved. Business is hard. And in order to make it through the tough times, you've got to love what you're doing. It just turns out, especially for small businesses, greed is insufficient. Motivation to keep people working late hours when there's a leak in the roof, when your spouse has run away with somebody that you're jealous of, your dog bit you, and your landlord has just uh, sent you an eviction notice. And those two thing, things do happen in business, and they tend to happen on a, late on a Saturday night. And it just greed is not enough to get you to come back on Sunday morning, clean up this mess, and begin dealing with the problems one by one. But
3: loving the business might get you through it. Because of its success in San Francisco, the briar Patch approach has now spread all the way to Japan and Sweden. The Swedes were so impressed by it, they adopted it as a model for national small business development. Michael Phillips has been invited to Sweden several times to share his experience with Swedish business people. And on one of these visits, something happened which I think makes a fitting ending for tonight's program.
1: I visited a little town in Sweden called Philipsstadt. It's in the center of Sweden in Varmland. This was a town that was down to a little over 500 people left, a town of had been almost 25,000. And with a group of other people, I was invited to Philipstadt to meet with the people and the, the business people. There were about 30 people. They'd all been asked to bring their financial information about their business, and they were very reluctant, but it was, the person who invited them was important in the town. And at that point, anybody was willing to try anything. And I said, I don't know what good this is going to be, but I do know an awful lot about businesses, and if you give me a specific business, I can give you an awful lot of very specific help. You show me the financial information, describe the business, and I can tell you how to improve your business. Who's going to have the first information? Well, nobody, no proper self-respecting Swedish business person is going to show their financial statements under any circumstances. They don't even talk to strangers, and, and even in a small town, they... They would never show it to anybody else. It's like showing their medical records to somebody else. One woman one woman, who had a uh, small woolen goods store that appealed to tourists said, OK, I'll, I'll sh- here's my financial records. Can you see what I can do? And so I projected them on the wall. And I started to talk, ask her some questions and talk about it. And the room began to murmur and seethe and hiss with noise and the noise gets got louder and louder. Here I'm trying to talk to this woman about her business and the noise level is getting louder and louder. Everybody was yelling and to talking to everybody else and the whole room was in just pandemonium. They were yelling at her, they were running over to her, they were talking to her as fast as they could. And I, I'm standing on the sideline and I asked my friends and the translator what's going on, what's happening and they slowly translated the various things they heard and they said, well... There's one guy who said she's paying too much rent. He knows a place she can get lower rent. There's another guy that said her transportation costs are too high. He goes into Stockholm every week. He'll pick up the stuff for her. His truck doesn't have that much in it when he comes back. Everybody was offering her significant ways to reduce all of her costs and making connections for her with friends of theirs in different parts of the country who would buy her goods and material and merchandise. They wanted to help her when she was open, and when they understood her business, which they did, they wanted to help her. And they knew how to help her. It was this community had a chance to apply its community spirit to the business at hand. Philipstadt has been growing since then. I think it's got, say, 1,500 to 2,000 people living in the town. And the number of businesses has almost doubled in that period of time. The town changed its direction. Now, there can be any explanation. There was no Nothing else has changed about the environment. It's still the same trees and the same low-grade coal and the same fields with beets growing sugar out there. It's the fact that these people had the power to use their social skills in a new area of business. Instead of having these all the resources in this teeny town isolated in financial terms, in terms of information and skills, they sort of form one communal dinner. And in the same way, if you... If everybody's eating dinner separately in their own homes, it's much more expensive than if you have a big potluck dinner to which everyone brings a little bit. Uh, That potential for community cooperation applies in business. But the first step is openness. Your financial records have to be open, And the potential miracles that flow from that uh, are enormous, and how it happens is going to take sociologists in the next century to come up with a good explanation. All I can see is it increases the social fabric, tightens the weave, and that's an analogy. It doesn't really say anything about what's actually happening.
0: have been listening to New Ideas on Economics and Ecology, written and presented by David Cayley. Technical Operations, Lorne Tulk, Production Assistants, Gail Brownell, and Production, Sarah Walsh. We've prepared a printed transcript of this four-part series. It costs $5, and you can get one by writing to Economics and Ecology, Care of CBC Enterprises, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W-1E6. Please enclose a cheque or money order for $5, and remember that delivery takes about eight weeks. We've also prepared a reading list of the subject. It's free, and you can get one by writing to us here at Ideas. Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W-1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, And I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.